0: To be honest with you, I thought long and hard about what to preach today. I really did. It's a special day. It's Easter, and so I had kind of thought about it, I'd kind of planned maybe to, to preach a one-off service, a one-off sermon, you know, a sort of standalone type sermon. And so, like during the week, the beginning of the week, I was kind of thinking, right, okay, what's Easter about? Easter, okay, the obvious thing to say is the primary theme about Easter is about resurrection from the dead. Okay, uh, yeah, I know that. And then I was thinking, what else, okay, about Easter? I was thinking, well, actually Easter is the, the day that more than any other, that society kind of looks on at the t- and laughs at us. Don't you think? You know, society today looks on at us and here today on Easter and kind of almost ridicules us for this belief that we have in the resurrection. There's all these things going on uh, in my head and I was pulling these things over. And I thought, okay, just out of curiosity, I'll check to see what would be the text if we as a congregation just carried on our sermon series on Sunday. And what did I find? I found a section of scripture that deals primarily with resurrection, uh, but a section of scripture that also shows our Lord himself being ridiculed and being ridiculed for his belief in life after death. (laughs) So, what did I do? I praised God for his, as always, perfect timing. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. That's the plan. And the first thing that I would uh, desire to draw your attention to here is a lesson about the significance of subservience. That's our first heading, if you like. A lesson about the significance of maybe submission or subservience. So how how do we see that in Mark chapter 3? How do we recognize that here? What does God teach us about that here? Well, if you were present in the congregation a couple of weeks ago, you'll know what's happening. You'll know that at this point here, Jesus is... Where is he? He's in the temple. So he's in the temple courts at this point, and he is teaching to a gathered crowd that a group of religious leaders, do you remember it? They'd come up to Jesus. They would sought to oppose Jesus by asking him questions about his authority. That's what's happened. Now, here's the deal. No sooner have those men left than another group of religious leaders appear on the scene. And we're told about them. Do you see what we're told? That it's Pharisees, and Herodians right, men who yeah men who had very little in common with each other other than their shared hatred of Jesus but men who at this point in the temple come armed to Jesus and they come armed with a trap Okay. so what is the trap that these religious men have got for Jesus well I don't know if the Brazilians in here are the uh, South Koreans or the Africans are familiar with that weird English expression uh, to be buttered up. We don't we don't use it very often, uh, but maybe you you know the expression to be buttered up. That's what happens here, because this religious group of people they come to Jesus and they seek first of all to flatter him. They seek to butter Jesus up before revealing their plan. Now, what's the trap? Did you pick up on the trap that they've got for Jesus? Let me read it to you. They come in, they ask him this question, they say, okay, Jesus, here you go. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's your trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? Now, if you and I are going to understand this, we've really got to appreciate how contentious The taxation system was in Jerusalem at the time. I'm a Scotsman, (laughs) as you may have gathered from the accent. I was brought up in Scotland in the 1980s, okay? A time where, if you so much mentioned Margaret Thatcher and her poll tax, if you so much mentioned that in the 1980s in Scotland, the best you could hope for would be a, a scalp around, around the ear. Now you see that, even that, is nothing compared to what we're dealing with here. Okay, the Romans, just before this event here, they had implemented a new poll tax. Okay, a new taxation system in Ju- Judea, Jerusalem in particular. And I've got to tell you, see the people, they, oh man, they hated it. Like they despised this taxation system, basically because it enslaved them to Rome. So I'm asking you, do you see the trap Do you see the trap? Like if Jesus says, yes, you must pay taxes, what's going to happen? The crowd, they're all going to turn against Jesus as a sympathizer to Rome, aren't they? But what about if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, what's going to happen? The Rome soldiers, you can imagine in a split second they're gonna descend on the temple, they're gonna get Jesus, they're gonna drag him off. You, can, do you see, like he is trapped here between a rock and a hard place. I'm looking at this during the week and I'm scratching my head thinking, how does he get out of this? I mean, how, how does he get out of this? So what does he do? Well, you'll notice that at this point Jesus speaks and he speaks about what is called a denarius a weird word, isn't it? A strange word, a denarius. What's a denarius? Well, I got the boys and girls, I've given them a worksheet this morning, and I've given them a denarius to colour in on the worksheet. Now, a denarius was, a, a, of course, a Roman coin. Now, here's the thing, though. The important thing to know is that a denarius had a picture of the emperor. Tiberius Caesar on the front of the coin alongside an inscription of his name. And so Jesus begins uh, to speak about this coin and then he issues his now famous instruction. Do you notice what he says? He says to these people, he says to the crowd, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's And give to God what is God's. Now, here's the thing. What I want you to notice is how the crowd gathered around Jesus reacts. So look at verse 17 with me. How do they respond to this? Do you see? Jesus says this, and the crowd, they marvel. Now, I'm asking you, do you see why they marvel? Do you see what is marvelous about this? By Jesus not fully aligning himself with Rome... But also by not, you know, denying paying the tax. What has Jesus been able to achieve at this point? What's he been able to do? He's been able to resist arrest, And at the same time, he's been able to keep the crowd on side. (laughs) That's how he gets out of it. I mean, this is genius, isn't it? It's so clever. He's been able to evade this wicked trap. We could we could spend quite a while just basking it in Jesus' genius. I'm pretty sure you see that there's more here than that, because what does Jesus do for us? Jesus is using this conflict with these religious leaders, and he's using it to teach you about the Christian life. And so, the question that you must be asking, the question that I've got to ask as well. Is what does this mean for us? London City Presbyterian Church. What does it mean for you to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what what is his? What does that mean? Well, even if, friend, you've only been living in the United Kingdom for a short while, and, you know, as I look around, I know that that's probably the case for quite a lot of you. Okay, so even if you've only been in the United Kingdom for, let's say, a few months, a few years, you maybe have seen... That it's getting harder for Christians in this country to live openly as believers. Isn't that right? I don't think that's a particularly contentious or controversial thing to say, is it? It's getting harder for Christians to live openly as Christians in the United Kingdom because society's really changing, isn't it, quickly. Culture in London's changing rapidly. Even government policy You'll have noticed it. it's not a contentious thing to say that it's moving really rapidly away from the Bible, from biblical truth. That's the case, isn't it? I doubt anyone's going to disagree with that. And see what that means for us as Christians is leaving the church. It's leaving Christians kind of wrestling with, well, hang on, how do we now live as believers? culture's changing, society's changing, things are changing. How do we respond? How do we live in this now kind of more hostile environment for the people of God? You see? Do you understand that that is what Jesus is teaching us about here? I think about it for a moment. In speaking to the people in Jerusalem under Roman occupation, He is actually here able to teach you and me how to live under secular rule. And what he says is really quite clear, isn't it? What was the first thing that he said to you? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You see what that means? Friends, even if we are living under a pagan authority, even if it's pagan, even if it's secular, what's the role of the church? What do we do? We are not to be rebellious. As Christians, we're not to be mutinous. No, we're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We're supposed to ask the church, give respect, give honor that is due to these people. That's the first thing. What was the other side of it though? What was the second side? Give to Caesar. What's the other side? Give to God. What is God? And you surely see what that means. That yes, you and I are supposed to respect our civil authorities, but much. Much more than that, we are to live in obedience to the supreme authority in all of creation. And did you notice the marvellous way that Jesus brought that out in the text? Because he's really saying to you, yeah, there's a coin, there's a denarius, and it's got, what's the word used? It's got a likeness. It's got an image of Caesar on it, so it belongs to Caesar. But what is he saying to you? What is true of you and of me and what is true of all of humanity? We bear the likeness. We bear the image of Almighty God. And so in everything, everything in our lives, it belongs to, to him. So let me be direct with you, the smart friend. Are you living in accordance with what Jesus calls for in Mark chapter Are you and I living as respectful citizens in this country? Are we really as Christians? Are we a shining light? Are we paying our taxes in exactly the way that we should be? Are we obeying the laws of the land in the way that we should be? More than that. Above that, friends, are you and I as Christians living in obedience to the Lord our God? Are you, on a daily basis as a Christian, increasingly yielding every area of your life over to your God in worship, love, and adoration? We see here a lesson about the significance of subservience, to state, but to God. Second thing that we must notice here is a lesson about associations in the afterlife so make sure you get that it's the second heading associations in the afterlife okay so what do we see about that here Um, reading this section of scripture over the last couple of weeks it's, it's kind of been like watching a conveyor belt go by a little bit hasn't it one group of religious leaders come along and then they go And then another group of religious leaders come and go. It's not really a surprise to you and I as we move on in the chapter. What do we see? We see a third group of religious leaders enter the fray. A group that is introduced to you as, do you see in verse 18? They are Sadducees. Okay, now, it's important this. The Sadducees alongside the Pharisees were one of the two main religious groups in Jerusalem. So these guys are important. These guys, they're the bigwigs, okay, the Sadducees. But they were very different to the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees believed in angels, for instance. See, the Sadducees didn't believe in any of that. The Pharisees believed that a lot of God's Old Testament, Pharisees believed a lot of that was God's word. The Sadducees, listen, it's important this for later on in the the sermon. Boys and girls, you'll have to remember this, right? The Sadducees believed that only the first five books of the Bible were divinely inspired. They believed that the Torah was God's word. The first five books of the Bible, remember that? Remember it for later on in the sermon. And then most importantly, where the Pharisees believed in life after death... What is it, friend, you're told in verse 18? Do you see? You're told explicitly here, these Sadducees didn't. So the Sadducees believed no resurrection, no life after death. They believed you die, you die, you die, you die, you die. That's it. Okay? And you see why that's important? Because why have this group of Sadducees come before Jesus? What are they in front of Jesus to do here in the temple courts? They're here to laugh him. The Sadducees have arrived not to, to trap him. They've arrived to ridicule his belief in life after death. Okay, They're here to poke fun at our Saviour. So how do they do it? Well, earlier on, you may have been taken aback by our first reading. I did think that when Adrian was reading it, thinking of people scratching their heads thinking this is not a particularly Easter uh, reading from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25. Um, sometimes we've got to work hard, don't we? We really do. You know, your devotional daily readings or your daily plan takes you to the Old Testament law, takes you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you open it up and you're like, I'm in Leviticus today or I'm in Deuteronomy and and we've got to work hard, we've got to concentrate. The Old Testament law. But you saw what Deuteronomy 25 was about, did you? It was about what was called leveret marriage. So, do you like the sounds of leveret marriage? Or not? Leveret marriage in the Old Testament was where a man's brother died. And it became, see if you like the sound of it. It became the man's duty to marry his brother's widow and to have children with her. Okay? And do you like the sounds of that? I'm not sure that we do, but even if we don't, you see the purpose of Leveret marriage, do you? This way, the dead man's name continued. In fact, this way, his property wasn't taken. His property remained in the family. It, it remained with the wife, you see. It's actually this lovely, gracious provision by God in the ancient world. Now, if you understand Leveret marriage... Do you not see that it forms the backdrop of the Sadducees' plan? Because do you remember a moment ago I said that the first group came armed to Jesus with a trap? These Sadducees come at Jesus armed. But what are they armed with? It's not a trap. What do they have for Jesus? It's a scenario. Isn't it? I mean, it's this most strange, unusual scenario. So let's let's try and get it right. See if you can picture it. They come up, they march up to Jesus, and they say, Okay, Jesus, here you go. Let's say a man dies, and his brother has to marry the wife. Okay, Jesus, but we've got more for you. What about this, Jesus? That brother dies as well. And what about this, Jesus? His bro- He dies, and his brother does the same thing, and he dies, and then the next brother, and they all die. There's seven of them, they all die. And then Jesus The woman, the wife, she dies too. So Jesus, in this afterlife that you believe in, in this heaven that you believe in, Jesus, whose wife will this woman be? And I'm asking you, friends, do you see what's happening here? I mean, everyone, everyone there is laughing at Jesus. Like they're all poking fun at him. They're trying to get the crowd beside him, trying to get him laughing at Jesus, ridiculing our Lord, everyone joking at him. So what does he do? How does Jesus respond to this? Well, Friends, if if we're going to understand this, I think you and I have to think about what the people of London believe heaven is going to be like. So I, w- I want to do this this morning, I want to turn this over to you. I want you to ask, you know, think about this for a moment. The people in your life, you know, the, the people who are not Christians in your life, what, you know, if they believe in heaven at all, what is it that they think heaven is like, would you say? I don't know, like if, if they're anything like the people in my life, uh, people today just think heaven's a party, basically. If, if it exists at all, heaven's a party, right? <laughs> Um, I think that people in my life think heaven's just going to be like this life, but on steroids or something. You know, it's going to be like this life, but just a bit better, and all the problems taken out. That's going to be heaven. That's that's just right. That's the general consensus of heaven. Do you see at this moment here in the text, Jesus is addressing that, and he's saying it is not right. They hear Jesus is speaking to those Sadducees and say, "You've got it wrong, guys." He's saying, see this scenario that you've made up for me? It makes one fundamental incorrect assumption. The assumption that heaven is just like this present existence. The assumption that relationships, they just continue as is in heaven. That brothers and families and and, and marriages just going to continue in glory above. And what is it, friends, that Jesus establishes for you? What does he show you here? He teaches you, friends, heaven is nothing like this present existence. That your God's home, it is radically, it is fundamentally different to ours. So let me say this to you. I, I long for that truth to press upon your soul if you're born again this morning because I don't know like maybe it is the case that even as a Christian this morning you're making the same mistake as the people of London are you? are you? like are you thinking that okay when I die I'm going to heaven I'll be with God and it will be good it's going to be it's going to be nice it's going to be special yeah do you understand it's not going to be like that Do you understand that your Savior has gone before you to do what? He has prepared a place for you. He has prepared a home for you. And listen to me when I say that that home is so beautiful that it transcends anything that you have ever known before. That you cannot even begin to imagine the splendor of that heavenly home. I mean, think about it here. Like when Jesus is, is, is looking for a metaphor to describe your relationships in heaven, what does he have to do? He has to say it's going to be like the angels. Why? Because there is nothing, nothing on this earth that even comes close to how it will be there. And friend, if, if, if you're married, oh, don't be anxious, and you could be, can't you? You know, as a Christian, you think there's no marriage in heaven, but I love my spouse. Does that mean that in heaven I will, I will not get to be with my spouse? Will I not know my spouse in glory? I'm saying it's not like that. We think about that beautiful picture we've seen in Matthew 8 before with Abraham reclining in glory and who's with him. He's there with his family. If your spouse, and only if your spouse is believing here on earth, I am sure you will know them. You will love them in glory. It's just that all of your relationships, all of them will be perfect. Do you understand that your present marriage... Just now, it will be entirely unnecessary in glory. Why? Because all of the focus, and all of the attention, all of the spotlight, it will be on the marital bond between Christ and His Church. I honestly believe that that we should be we should be jumping for joy that these Sadducees had it so utterly wrong. We have a home in gloryland. We do. And it is better than anything you've ever thought of, you've ever seen, you've ever known better than anything you have ever imagined before. We see something of the associations in the afterlife. The third, the last, we see here a lesson about the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room, unless you're visiting this weekend on, on holiday, everyone will have seen the BBC study uh, that they released, uh, they published this past week uh, about belief at Easter time probably every minister in the country is going to be mentioning the study at some stage today I read it and I was not in any way surprised, were you surprised by this? you know, the big revelation is that people in the United Kingdom don't believe in a Christian view of life after death. That's not a surprise to us, is it? Uh, I think it said only 17% of people, uh, that they would adhere to a biblical uh, understanding of the resurrection and life after death. There you go. Well, it's to that that Jesus turns at this point. I wonder if you see what I mean. What's he just done? Jesus has spoken to the Sadducees about the matter, the character of resurrection life, hasn't he? He's talked about something, about about what it's going to be like for believers. But what he does now is he actually underlines the fact of life under death, after death. They actually now, to the Sadducees, to you, he underscores the very reality of resurrection and do you know what i think what he does here is really quite surprising because what he does for the sadducees is he points them to exodus chapter 3 now i just want to establish this before we go on you know exodus chapter 3 do you i'm pretty sure everyone knows exodus chapter 3 i've done a sneaky thing uh just so that the boys and girls know i've put this on your worksheet as well haven't i what have you got a picture of You've got a picture of Moses, don't you? And he's in front of a burning what? Burning bush. Burning bush. And God is speaking from the burning bush. We know this. Don't we? We know uh, that. Now, here's the thing, friends. What is it that God is doing at that very moment in Exodus 3? He is revealing something of himself. Now, he's disclosing his name. Now what does that mean? At this point God is disclosing something about his character. So we've established that everyone knows the story. What's the question we're all asking? What's that going to do with anything? Isn't that right? Why is Jesus speaking to the the Sadducees and pointing them to Exodus? How does Exodus, how does the burning bush prove Life after death, you see? It's probably not what you think. A lot of people read this and think that it is about the language that God uses. Do you see what I mean? That he's speaking to Moses hundreds of years after Abraham has died, and yet he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says what? He says, I am the God of Abraham. Even though Abraham has been dead for hundreds of years. So what do people conclude? They conclude? What conclude? They, they conclude. Abraham must still be alive. This proves life after death. It's not that. At least that's not all it is. Friends, listen to me, please. What Jesus is doing here. He is pointing the Sadducees and you to the covenant. Faithfulness of God. Isn't he? He's saying to the Sadducees, you believe in the... What was it, boys and girls? The Sadducees believed in the Torah. You of all people should know that God has entered into a covenant with Abraham. What does God call that agreement? An everlasting Covenant of grace. We so say in the Sadducees, you of all people should know that since God has done this, and since God is a faithful God, God is an all-powerful God, God is a holy God, that not even the grave, that not even death can stand in the way of his commitment to those who are his. And I tell you this, I wish, I wish that I'd been there. I really do. To hear that from Jesus, for him to open our eyes to see that there's a reality of eternal life founded in the covenant faithfulness of God, to be there in the temple. Amazing! But I'm even more concerned to see whether you realize that significance for you as a Christian. Do you see what it means for you in here? It means, friends, if you are born again in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian this morning, you can be utterly and entirely assured of this. One day, your body is going to rise from the dead. If you are in Christ Jesus, you be assured not only that, but that in death you will experience the eternal protection and the eternal prosperity of the Lord God Almighty. And why is that? Because just as with Abraham today in Christ Jesus, you sit under the covenant of grace. Just as with Abraham, God in Christ Jesus has entered into a commitment to you. And it is a commitment to be your God. And get this, it is a commitment to be your God forever and ever and ever and ever. So all that's left is for us to surely bask in how the covenant will be fulfilled. You know the story if you're a Christian. What would Jesus do? what would he do? He wouldn't just stand in front of these Sadducees and teach them. He wouldn't just instruct them about resurrection. What would Jesus do? Come on, why are we here? What would Jesus do? On this same week, he would go at the cross. He would atone for sin and what would he do? He would authenticate the message. He'd verify the message and how? By on the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ would rise from the Dead. And it's true that he will become the firstborn from among the dead. So I believe this morning more than any other day, you should be jubilant, you should be rejoicing as a Christian. Because you have a wonderful future ahead of you. You're gonna live. Yeah, you're going to die, but you're going to live. You're going to live. Eternal life is yours. And why? Oh, because on that first Easter morning, what the angel said to Mary, it was true. Where is the covenant redeemer? Where is the covenant mediator? Where is Jesus? What did he say? He's not here. He is risen. He's risen from the dead. Let's pray.